talk about uh, the barometer <laughs> of our justification or, or the thing that gives us evidence that we've been justified, and that is our actions. We're going to be looking at James chapter 2, verses 14 through 22. And, and just by way of a quick review, in the last message from James, uh, he explained to us that uh, true saving faith uh, can't coexist with things like racism or favoritism. And that's what it covers in chapter 2, is to let us know that those are things that would give evidence to the fact we're not truly been born again. Uh, it's like Brother Steve said during the Sunday school lesson this morning that uh, Christianity treated women differently because they realized they were special creations of God. And uh, so they had uh, more respect for womankind than any other religion uh, of its day, certainly. Uh, Christ's love is extended to all mankind, and we all come from a common ancestry. Uh, the idea that one race is better than another race is inherently an evolutionary concept. It's not a concept taught by creation, because we all come from Adam and Eve. And so favoritism is just not consistent with the mercy of God. And, and now James says that, that true saving faith uh, uh, can't coexist without manifesting itself in godly acts. And James lays out three different kinds of faith. He says, well, there's dead faith. That's faith without works. That's faith that's not accompanied by any change in behavior. And then there's demonic faith. He says, you say you believe, you do well, but even the demons believe and they also tremble. Uh, in other words, they, they, they know who Christ is. And as Brother Steve again pointed out in his Sunday school lesson this morning, very often the demons gave an accurate testimony of who Jesus Christ was. Uh, and yet, and they even feared, uh, you know, they, they feared. They, it was kind of like, oh, please don't cast us in the pit. And Jesus says, okay, you can go into those swine over there. And off they went into the, to the swine. And by the way, there's a reason Jesus chose swine because that was, the, that was in Gadara where there was half the tribe of Gad that had settled. This was Jewish descendants raising pigs, which means they had gotten a long way from uh, their, their Jewish uh, moorings and their foundation. They shouldn't have been associated with unclean animals, and yet they were. And uh, Jesus sends them to the swine, and now they come out and beg them to leave town. That's an interesting story uh, all unto itself. But James is, is combating this, this self-justifying speech uh, that some people gave that they say the right words. It's like the Pharisees. They would often say the right words, but then they didn't have the actions to back up the fact that they had a relationship uh, with God. And so there was a lot of confusion for many years over the differences between Paul and James. And Martin Luther was one of these people that was confused. He didn't think James should be uh, in the, the canon of Scripture because he said that James taught that salvation is done by works, whereas Paul says salvation is by faith and the two were not mutually compatible. But we read in the book of James that James himself says exactly the opposite. It says, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, and Abraham believed God and it was credited or it was counted to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. So James asserts the fact that Abraham was made righteous, what? When he believed God. Paul would have said the same thing. They would have agreed completely on that point. But the big difference between James's Paul is what they meant by works. Uh, Paul would say that works were the works of the law, that is the Jewish ceremonies, the rituals, the, 
the being circumcised, the keeping of Jewish feasts and holidays. And he would tell anyone that asked him, you are not saved by those works. You can do those works and still go to hell because you have to have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we'd all agree with that. James would agree with that. But when James referred to works, he was talking about the actions of righteousness that come from a relationship with Jesus Christ. They're the evidence or the barometer of the fact that we've been saved. And so a genuine faith is authenticated by godly works. It's just like when you buy a piece of art, you get a certificate of authenticity. Uh, I I don't know uh, in 59 years of living on the planet, I don't know too many places I've gotten a close brush with fame yet. I may not have even had my 15 minutes with fame. But a number of years ago, I I had a, a brush with someone who was famous. I got a call uh, one day, and uh, apparently, uh, if you remember uh, the Walker, Texas Ranger TV show with Chuck Norris as the star, uh, apparently they lost the entire manuscripts for their entire fifth season to a computer virus. And so they called around uh, looking for various places who would come out and undertake the recovery, and uh, somehow or other, two or three people said, well, you need to call this particular company and ask for Robert Rowland. And so... I get this call and I go out to the movie studios that were just west of I-35, north of 635, and that's where they had the uh, the rooms for the inside of the courthouse and they had the rooms for the, the bar that you frequently saw people in. A lot of those rooms, and it was very fascinating to me. I'd never been in a movie studio before, and the whole studio was cooled about 55 degrees because when they started recording, they had to turn all the air conditioners and fans off for sound quality, and when they turn on those big spotlights, the room heats up quite quickly. So I learned very quickly that you, if you really want to appreciate how good and an actor or actresses appreciate the fact that they're not shivering when they first go on stage, you know, because they're in 55-degree room that's heating up rapidly and they have to look like they're comfortable in it. And, and uh, But at any rate, I, I did after about two days. I, I had to work on servers here in Irving, servers out in California, but we got all of their scripts back. So if you ever watch season five of Walker, Texas Ranger, you can thank me for that. Uh, but it, I got their scripts back. But uh, while while I was there, you know, out of out of gratitude, I just happened to mention that I I like a, a, a signed photo of Chuck Norris. So I came back with a Walker Texas Ranger T-shirt and a Walker Texas Ranger hat, and I do have a a signed uh, autographed picture of Chuck Norris, and even includes a certificate of authenticity on the back to let me know that that really was Chuck Norris's signature on there. I did not get to meet him which is good because I was going to try to arm wrestle the man or out to push up him or something else if we'd met in person. You know, they say that Chuck Norris, when he does push-ups, actually pushes the earth away from him. Uh, so, you know, at any rate, just a, just a neat guy uh, in a lot of respects and still uh, I'm still very much a fan. Uh, but I, I remember that, you know, uh, I, I, was, I was impressed by the fact that you know there was that certificate of authenticity now how do our works get how what do our works do for our faith well they authenticate that it's real now see you got to be careful about this anybody can do a few good works at a few times but when you look at someone whose life is consistently full of godly acts, consistently full of demonstrations of the love of Christ and whose life is characterized by the kind of life you would expect a Christian to live, then that's the real deal. You see, 
anybody can occasionally do good, but they can't, without Christ, they're going to constantly sink to a lower level. Now, the opposite happens when you become a Christian is that Christ changes your life so that you consistently live at a new level, although sometimes you still flub up, you still sin, and you still fall back down. But if you look at the overall character of the life, you can determine that, yes, that life has been touched by Jesus Christ. You You can see that fact. So a genuine faith is one that's actively at work then. And so we're going to look at uh, some examples he gives about how faith changes us. And he's going to bring two examples basically to a court and put them on trial. And we're going to look at how their actions justify uh, their works. Now, James believes in a faith that changes you. And I've given you an illustration of my grabbing hold of an electrical wire that I thought because the switch was off at the wall, it was not going to be hot and I was wrong and it produced a change in my behavior. Well, I just, believe, I just know that you can't meet the King of kings and the Lord of lords and it not change your life forever. And so if you're not changed by Jesus Christ, you have to ask yourself the question whether you're really in Jesus Christ, if you've really received Jesus Christ. And uh, it, this, it shouldn't be a change you have to make intentionally. It should be part of your character to want to live to please him. And again, Paul and James differed in their use of works. Paul used works to refer to religious acts, while James used works to refer to the godly acts that were visible that provided an evidence of our relationship to Jesus Christ. And this is all review, which is why I'm kind of going fast through these first few slides. What James means is he's, he's talking about the demonstration of faith in Jesus Christ by works of mercy. And this is why he talks about treating uh, someone who comes into the service and they're poor and they're not well off and you treat them just as well as you would someone who came in and was rich. You don't show favoritism. You don't show partiality. And here he's referring specifically to how do we treat our brother or sister in Jesus Christ. Uh, Jesus said of, of his disciples that people would know we were his disciples by our love for one another. So we have to have love for one another. And so these works that James talks about are giving evidence uh, of true salvation are works of mercy. It means that we're meeting the basic needs. We're not telling somebody, hey, uh, be warm and be filled when in, and then not do anything about their clothing or their food. We meet those basic needs because we're showing our care and concern for them uh, and, and that those actions are more than words. Uh, I remember my mother when I was growing up, she and my dad did not have the best of relationships, but I can still remember hearing my mother say to my father, that your, your actions speak so loudly I can't hear what your words say. And it made an impression on me because our actions do speak volumes and they speak uh, in a way that often overcomes our words uh, because the actions, uh, as Jimmy Johnson theology dictates, your walk needs to match your talk. Now, so our faith is on trial. And James is going to put on trial the faith of a couple of individuals so that we can see that, uh, that men want to see if our faith is the real deal. Now, God already knows. We don't have to prove anything to God. He sees our heart. But he's the only one that can see our heart. Everyone in here, I think, has probably given an attestation of the fact that they're a Christian, that they have faith. And, and I believe you by looking at your actions. But the reality is I can't see your heart. If you were really gifted at playing the part of a hypocrite one day a week, you might fool me. You'll never fool God because he can see you and he sees your heart. Others of you would have a lot harder time fooling me because I've known you for over 40 years. 
Uh, and so I've had a longer time to view the consistency of evidence to believe that you're generally, gen, genuinely born again. Uh, so we, we need to understand the fact that God sees our heart. We don't have to prove anything to him. But when others meet us, how are they going to know we are Christian? Uh, do we have to wear a cross necklace around our neck? Well, guess what? A lot of actresses wear cross necklaces around their neck but give no evidence of the fact they've ever been born again. There's nothing in their behavior to suggest that. They do things that compromise any Christian testimony that surely they would not do uh, if they were genuinely born again. I was uh, watching a movie this week with one of my favorite actors who is a very fine Christian. He's a very good political conservative. He doesn't get a lot of huge roles, but he's made some great Christian movies. This happened to be one of his older movies, I think before his conversion to Christ, and I, and I just made the comment to my wife, he wouldn't use that same vocabulary today because all of his more recent movies, he doesn't have any profanity in those movies. He doesn't do that anymore because Christ has produced a change and not only in his character, but even in his linguistics. Uh, and it has made a profound change to them. So, but our faith is on trial and people want to see if there's enough evidence to convict us of being a real Christian. In other words, if we say that we're Christian, if we, if we talk about having a Christian family, if we talk about church being important to us, what's the rest of our life like? Uh, will they see consistency or will they find something else to just... Uh, to, to excuse, uh, uh, give a reason. The, the main thing is that words are just not enough. And James makes this point that, that uh, it's not enough to say the right words. Uh, the, the, let's, let's face it. Your words can't save you and your works can't save you. Only Christ can save you. But we, with words, receive Jesus Christ into our heart as Savior. And it's with works that we give evidence of the fact that that transaction has taken place. And so it's, it's much more advisable to emphasize what James does that, that says that faith without works is not good to anybody because it's not real. It's just words, and words are simply not enough. So James issues a challenge in verse 18, and he says this, But someone will say, and he poses a hypothetical third person somewhere, he says, You may hear this challenge someday. And it would be a challenge I would reiterate to you. He says, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. Now that's quite a challenge. Show me your faith without your works. And the thing is, you can't do it. There's no way you can take your faith out, put it in your hand and say, look here. Uh, the only way I can see your faith is by your works. By your actions. I'm limited that that's my perspective. And, and it's impossible. So people can only see the outward manifestations of our faith. In other words, if we have real saving dynamic faith in the risen Lord Jesus Christ, it produces a visible change in our behavior, a change in our demeanor, a change in our actions, and a change in our attitudes that others can bear witness to. Now, again, James says even the demons believe and they also tremble. They, they know who he is. They tremble at his presence. But clearly that's not enough for us. So the only uh, good thing that anyone, that the only proof that anything good has changed in our lives is if there's a change in our outward manifestation of our faith. So actions then are the barometer of our justification. Now, you can't see barometric pressure changes. Now, we can go outside, kind of like the old saying, you can't see the wind, but you can see what the wind does. It blows the leaves around, bends the trees over. 
Uh, we can't see barometric pressure changes, but if you happen to have a barometer at your house, it's a little glass tube, it's filled with mercury, it's usually colored, and you can watch it go up and down, or maybe you've got one of those that has a, a needle, and you can watch the needle either fall to the left or rise to the right, and we know, if you know anything about meteorology, when the barometer is falling, it's much more likely that there's a cold front coming and or a storm on the way. Now, I don't need that. I have something far more accurate than Google or Alexa, and that is every time there is a storm or a cold front coming, I start hurting everywhere. Every And I mean, there are places that hurt all the time in my back that just, you know, I get up in the morning, I have spasms in my back that I have to overcome just to get out of bed. Uh, and the, I had one of those this morning. I got up and it took me uh, five minutes sitting on the edge of bed before I could stand uh, to, to get up and go to the restroom. It just you know, it grabbed my attention for a little bit. Uh, but that's not the kind of pain I have when a storm's coming. When a storm's coming, uh, everything in my whole body aches at once. My, my legs ache, my knees ache, my ankles ache, my feet ache, my arms ache. I, I feel like I'm made out of concrete and everything hurts. And, I, and when I feel that way, first thing I do is I'll, because Alexa's in the room, I'll say, Alexa, what's the weather? And I'll, I'll usually ask, because I've learned, I, I, I know about storms about 72 hours in advance. So I'll say, Alexa, what's the weather for the next three days? And almost invariably, she, she'll say, well, today is sunshine, uh, tomorrow is sunshine, and then Wednesday is partly cloudy with, with sunshine, but everything sounds sunshiny. And I'm thinking, well, it doesn't feel sunshiny. And then I'll get out the phone and I'll, I'll look at Google, look at the five-day forecast. Sometimes Google a hint of something, but a lot of times it says sunshine, sunshine, sunshine. And you know what invariably happens three days later? Google and Alexa have to change their weather forecast because I was right and they were wrong. And sure enough, here comes rain, or here comes a cold front, or here comes a chance of precipitation that was not in the forecast originally. It's because God has given me a built-in barometer, or maybe the surgeon gave it to me when he put titanium in my spine. But I have a built-in barometer now. I know when it's going to rain. I feel the effects of the barometric pressure change when it first starts happening. And there's some science behind that that says when barometric pressure starts dropping, your nerves expand or swell a little bit. And when they swell a little bit, uh, it rubs against maybe the bone or the facets, openings in the spine, and therefore you start feeling pain. And that, at least that's one theory. There's probably others. Uh, most doctors, if you ask them, why do people that have implants in their body uh, feel these things? And they'll say, I don't, we don't know. We don't know. But it's, it's a real phenomena, and doctors are aware of the phenomena. So James is going to introduce to us two witnesses, two very different witnesses, by the way. Uh, for one, we're going to start with Abraham, who's a revered patriarch, and we're going to compare him to Rahab, who is a, a, a repentant uh, or reformed prostitute. Now, by the way, the word prostitute, uh, uh, the Jewish commentators uh, often just said, well, she was an innkeeper, because I, I think they were trying to avoid the idea that a prostitute could ever be in the lineage of King David, because she is one of the ancestors of King David. Uh, but, you know, in that day and time, uh, often young girls in heathen communities were sold into prostitution around the age of 10, and they grew up uh, doing that, and that was their way of life, and they often became innkeepers because they rented rooms out for obvious reasons. Uh, we know that Abraham was a Jew. Rahab is a Canaanite woman from Jericho, so she would be a Gentile. We know that Abraham gave really perfect obedience to what God asked him to do when he said, offer up your only son Isaac. Uh, Rahab 
Uh, she hid the spies, which is okay. That was a good thing for her to have done. But then she lied to government authorities. And, of course, there is one of those Ten Commandments that says, Thou shalt not bear false witness. And she bore false witness. So it was an imperfect obedience. And yet what she did still demonstrated that she believed that Yahweh was the one and only true God. Uh, she adopted a monotheistic faith when it was not the normal thing to do. And then Abraham, of course, became the ancestor of King David and Jesus Christ. And guess what? That's the one thing she, uh, he and Rahab have in common is that she became an ancestor of King David and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at these two witnesses and look at, first, at the first witness who, who prepares to offer his only son Isaac as a sacrifice to God. And that story is in Genesis chapter 22. So let's read what he has to say about it. James 2 verses 20 through 24. But do you want to know, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working together with his works, and by the works the faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, and he was called God's friend. So right there, again, he agrees with Paul, and then he adds this. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And, and this is where Martin Luther had his problems. He says, well, that directly contradicts Paul. No, it's because they refer to two different kinds of works. Paul refers to religious ceremonies and rituals can't save you. But James is saying that you're justified before men. People get proof of the fact that you have a relationship with Jesus Christ when you do works of mercy toward others, works that show the love of Christ toward others, works that show that you care about others. Uh, so the crux of the argument, again, is Paul is really arguing for the priority of faith. He would say that only faith can save a person and that all the works of the law are useless uh, without Jesus Christ, since none of, no one could keep the works of the law perfectly. James, though, argues for the proof of faith. Like Paul, he believes that salvation only comes through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and receiving him as your Savior, but he argues that the only way to prove your faith so that others can see it is that your actions, your behavior, your demeanor, your speech change, your relationships change, how you treat the dog changes simply because you have Jesus Christ in your life. And my wife has to sometimes remember, remind me about how I treat the dog. Actually, I don't have a lot of interaction with the dogs. The kids take care of it. But the dogs do know if I come and just point my finger, they're in trouble. Uh, and I, I, I've never hit either one of those dogs, but they, they know I'm the alpha male in the house, and they have great respect for that fact. And uh, especially our Dalmatian, he just... Uh, he practically shivers in his timbers, and I've never hit the dog in his life, but he just he knows I'm the alpha male. Uh, so it's pretty interesting. Um, Jesus himself, though, would agree with James by saying that words are not enough. Well, look what he said to the Pharisees one time. It says, They answered and said to him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you are the children of Abraham, look at this, do the deeds of Abraham. In other words, if you're really children of Abraham, do what Abraham did. Do the actions of Abraham. What did Abraham do? Well, when the three visitors came to him out of the desert, he recognized that one of them was a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ. He, he prepared a meal for them. He entertained them. He spent time with them. He ranged his, rearranged his priorities. What did he do? When, when he was told to offer up his only son Isaac, he obeyed completely. 
and he obeyed uh, in great detail, and he did everything that God had told him to do. Uh, in other words, Abraham wasn't a person who just mouthed words of adoration for God. He showed it by his obedience to God. And therein is the, the, the Jesus said, hey, if you want to claim to be the children of Abraham, do what Abraham did. Quit talking about it and actually live it out. Now, Paul argued on Abraham too. And, and look what he, what he says here in Romans chapter 4. What then shall we say that Abraham, our ancestor according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, and remember Paul's talking about the works of the law, the works of righteousness. And you got to remember when Abraham was around, the law hadn't even been invented yet. Now Moses hadn't come yet uh, to give us the Ten Commandments. But, so there, but God did institute uh, circumcision fairly early. Uh, and so you could say maybe that. But he says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to uh, boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? And Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now to the one who works, his pay is not credited according to... Uh, yeah, I was making sure I read that. It's not credited according to grace, but according to his due. But to the one who does not work, but who believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Now, interestingly enough, this phrase I've got highlighted in bold there, and Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness, is from Genesis 15 and verse 6. That's uh, two chapters before Genesis 17 and 11 where circumcision was introduced. And so circumcision is the thing that all Jews, you know, it's kind of like, hey, we're the circumcised. You, everybody else is the uncircumcised. And they look down on the uncircumcised so much that when Jews converted to Christianity, some of them uh, were still so proud of their circumcision that they said, oh, but you've got to be circumcised before you can become a Christian. And this is why in Acts 15 we have the Council of Jerusalem where both sides give their evidence. And James, as the senior pastor of Jerusalem, makes the decision. He says, men and brethren, and this is my judgment. You don't have to be circumcised to become a Christian. But if you are a Christian from a pagan background, you should re refrain from eating things with the blood, uh, you know, because that's, that's offensive to your, your brothers in Christ who are Jews. You don't want to do that. We're not trying to cause offense, but you don't have to have a surgical operation because God does things in the heart and that circumcision was just a symbol of, but he circumcises the flesh of your heart away when you ask Jesus Christ to be your Savior. So Paul's argument is Abraham was justified even before circumcision came along. So see that proves it right there. It's not the works of the law, but rather it is faith that justifies us. Totally right. Now James, and here's the phrase. I wrote this in yellow letters. I put asterisks next to it. I highlighted it because I want you to write it down. So this is a good thing to write down in your Bible, maybe at the top or the bottom of your page in your Bible in James chapter 2. But I like this. Faith is the basis of justification. Works are the barometer of justification. In other words, works give evidence of the fact of the, what we can't see. We can't see the justification like we can't see the barometric pressure, but works are the barometer of our justification. See, James explains that Abraham's faith was evident in the practice of the sacrifice of Isaac. So James says, you know, Abraham was was justified or declared righteous before mankind, before us as we read uh, the history of the Old Testament, when he demonstrated faith by obeying God and being willing to offer up his only son in obedience to God's instructions. It's important to note, by the way, that God doesn't let Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac go all the way. 
he stops him. He, he, uh, an angel stops him and he, he sees the ram over in the thicket. And he goes and grabs the ram and offers that instead. But he let it go far enough that we could see. I mean, Isaac's bound to the altar. Abraham has the knife raised when the angel stops him. It was clear to see that Abraham was going to follow through on his intent to obey God one way or the other, and that was far enough. Now, by the way, did God need this test to know Abraham's heart? No. Why is it the whole story in Scripture? So we can see when we look back there that Abraham had a real faith. He had a faith that he was willing to do something that we would find implausible as parents, that we would think there is no way we could do that. Uh, he did not let Abraham offer up his only son because that would have violated God's own righteous commands. It would have violated that command, thou shalt not murder. By the way, in the, in the Ten Commandments, it should be translated, thou shalt not murder, not thou shalt not kill. There are six different Hebrew words for kill, including killing as an act of self-defense, killing accidentally when you throw something at somebody and they didn't, don't catch it right and it breaks their neck. Uh, there's there's uh, six different words for killing. This, but it should be translated, "Thou shalt not murder." In other words, you don't decide that someone doesn't have a right to live and then go take action based on your belief and and eliminate them from the gene pool. That's what that word means. But but uh, it, it's also significant. He didn't let it do it because Abraham got asked a question by his son. We'll find that question here in just a minute. And and Abraham knew that God on that very same mountain at some point in the future day was going to offer up his only son, Jesus Christ, for our sins. How do we know Abraham knew that? Because Jesus said, and Abraham saw my day and was glad. Abraham was given a view in the future that no one else back then ever had. Now, by the way, there is this thing called the hermeneutical principle of first occurrence. Hermeneutics is the science of Bible interpretation. And the way a word is used in the first time it's used in Scripture determines its context. Well, Genesis 22 of God offering up Isaac is the first time in the Bible you see the word worship occur. It's never used before Genesis 22. It's his first time. Uh, let's, let's read the story. And it says, And it happened after these things, God tested Abraham. And he said, Abraham, and he said, Here I am. And he said, Take your son, your only son, your only child, Isaac, whom you love, and that was a big point for God. Uh, Isaac uh, was dearly loved by Abraham. And remember, Abraham had had another child, Ishmael, but he had it with a slave. And God says, no, it's not the son of the, the bondwoman who will be your, inherit the promises, but it's the son of the free woman who's going to inherit the promises. And, and so he says, take this son and offer him up as a burnt offering on one of the mountains where I will tell you. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his donkey. Now, he, God gives him this instruction, presumably in the evening. Next morning he gets up and he, what's he do? Immediately goes to do what God told him to do. I think I would have had some deliberations with God. I would have had to ask for a few signs. I might have had to throw some dice. I'd, I'd talk to my wife about it. I'd have flipped. I don't know what I've done. I'd have flipped a coin. Uh, but Abraham gets up, saddles his donkey, and he gets ready to go. And he took two of the servants with him and Isaac, his son, and he uh, chopped wood for a burnt offering because you've got to have a fire and there, weren't, there wasn't the kind of wood they needed up in the top of the mountain. And he got up and he went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and he saw the place that it isn't. So he's now traveled for three days with the wood, with his son, all the time thinking, I've got to kill my son. 
I mean, this wasn't like a split decision that he didn't have a lot of time to think about. He had three days of traveling listening to his son chatter on and getting to spend time with the son. And he already loved his son, and this, there's a, more time of bonding going on here. You just can't realize how this had to be ripping at Abraham's heart. Uh, and so here he is, and he says, uh, there, there, he sees the sight uh, and the place of distance. And says, and Abraham said to his servants, you stay here with the donkeys, and I and the boy will go up there. We will worship, then we will return to you. Now, this is an actual part of the sermon. This is free, but I think it's so interesting to note that this is the first use of the word worship. What should worship mean? Well, if we look at how it means in Abraham's life, it is giving to God what is dearest to us. We, we worship when we give to God what is dearest to us. Now, what's dearest to us? It should be our own lives, first of all, right? We should all love our own lives, so we should give to God our lives. What else should it mean? It should mean giving to God our families. Uh, I know when each of our children were born, we made a point of dedicating that child to the Lord in prayer and in church, in a formal service. We dedicated our children to the Lord. That was important for us to do because they were dearest to us. Uh, Every time you put an offering in the offering plate, uh, for many of us, that is giving God what is dearest to us because we need every dollar. And it seems like with inflation going up, it's harder to get the dollar to last the end of the month. It's important uh, that we do. And we do that because we're giving God what is dearest to us. It also means, though, that we're yielding to God our rights. We might think, well, I have a right to have a child. I have a right because Abraham had already been promised back in Genesis chapter 15 that he was going to have uh, the enough offspring that eventually they would spread across the earth and that this was coming through this child Isaac who was to be born of Sarah and now God's saying, oh, you know, I know I gave you that promise back here but I want you to kill your son Isaac. And, and Abraham's trying to reconcile in his mind how do you put those two things together and he comes up with a reconciliation actually, we'll find out in a minute, that he believed that he was going to kill Isaac but that God was going to raise Isaac up from the dead again. Now, that's, that's some pretty cool faith right there. Uh, but he says, I'm going to go worship. It means yielding God our rights, our dreams, our future, all the while trusting his will. And so that is really a great meaning or definition of worship. It's yielding everything we have to God, yielding our rights and our future and our dreams to him. And what was the answer to that? It says, and Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and placed it on Isaac, his son, and he took the fire in his hand because they didn't have a a big lighter, and they I guess they didn't carry around flint that could knock together, so if they had a fire started, they carried fire with them, which means for three days he's been feeding a little fire, carrying it with him in some form, whether they're coals or maybe in a clay pot or something, but he had the fire with him. And he says he took the fire in his hand and the knife, and the two of them went together. And Isaac said to Abraham, his father, Dad, <laughs> and he said, Here I am, my son. And he said, here's the fire in the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? See, Isaac had seen enough burnt offerings. He knew what the deal was. And he recognizes that dad has forgotten something. And Abraham said, God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And, of course, we know the story. He he binds Isaac to the altar. Now, I want to get to that in a minute. He binds Isaac to the altar. He's ready to slay him. And then God stops him, and there's a ram caught in in the bushes. And, and so later in Genesis 22, down in verse 14, it says, And Abraham called the name of that place, Yahweh will provide. Or he, as we would say it today, Jehovah Jireh. That's what he named the place. 
for which reason it is said today, on the mountains of Yahweh it will be provided. So Abraham says God is going to provide, and God did provide a sacrifice, and it was called Jehovah Jireh. And by the way, that was Mount Moriah, and on Mount Moriah is a hill called Calvary, and Jesus died on the same mountain, and I believe the same hill, on which Abraham was going to offer up uh, Isaac. So there's this demonstration, and it says they went together, they came to the place that God had told him, and Abraham built an altar there. He arranged the wood. So, you know, he builds an altar, puts rocks down. He, he puts the rocks in an order so it'll have a stable structure, and then he puts the wood on top of it and gets ready for the fire. And then he, he says, then he bound Isaac, his son, and placed him on the altar atop the wood, and Abraham stretched his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now, and we have to do a little bit of thinking here. How old was Abraham? Now, I'm in back issues aside. The rest of me is still in reasonable shape. I can still do a reasonable number of push-ups. Uh, I, can, I could probably take a small child who was 9 or 10, and I could hold him down until I had strapped him uh, to, to an altar, but Abraham's a hundred plus. It would not have taken much for Isaac to have fought against his father, wriggled away, run away, escaped. Abraham, I'm sure, could not have done what he did by himself, because remember his two servants are down the mountain keeping the donkeys. He could not have done what he did without Isaac's cooperation. I, I have to kind of ask myself with a little sanctified imagination, might this have not also been a demonstration of Isaac's faith? That he trusted his father enough to lay down while his father bound him to the altar. And, and what are you doing? He has got to either really have his trust that God is, is going to make this okay, or he's got so much respect for his dad he's willing to die for it, and as a parent that's not been my experience. Uh, this, is, this is a big deal to me. And, but what was it that Abraham did believe in that day? He, he, look at this passage in Hebrews 11. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered Isaac, and the one he received, uh, and, and the one who received the promises was ready to offer his one and only son, that is the only son of the promise, the only one God recognized, with reference to whom it was said, "In Isaac your descendants will be named, or in Isaac your seed uh, will go forth." And he says, uh, having reason that God was able to raise him from the dead from which he received him back also as a symbol. I almost wonder if after he offered up Isaac's question, was there more conversation? Did Isaac say, for example, so is this it then for me? You know, what, have you thought about the plans for the future? Do I have a future? Is this the end of it or what? You know, God, Abraham may have told his son, you know, I'm just doing what God told me to do here. You're going to lay on the altar. I'm going to offer you up as a sacrifice, but God's given me a promise that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed through you. I believe he's going to raise you up from the dead again. I wonder. Now, I don't know that. Scripture doesn't tell us. It just leaves it to, as I said, our sanctified imagination. But did Abraham pass on that belief to Isaac? I don't know. There's a whole lot about this story. I can't wait to see the instant replay tape on when I get to glory and, and say, can you show me that now that I know? All right, let's try this again. I want you to listen to the title of this little song. Uh, Haley Mills sings this with Haley Mills, by the way. Oh, let's get together, yeah, yeah, yeah. Think of all that we can do. 
Much longer song than that, but here's the point. We've got to get Paul and James together on this subject. Paul is saying Abraham was justified by faith. James is saying Abraham was justified by faith, evidenced by what he did. They both agree. They both come together on the side that Abraham was justified by faith, but the evidence was based on what he did. Now, let's look at the second witness, and Rahab is such a far cry from Abraham, it's a wonder that they're in the same story to me <laughs> because one's a man, one's a woman, one's a Jew, one's a Gentile, one is the, a, 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 the respected patriarch, the other is a, a redeemed prostitute, all the differences we mentioned earlier, and she hid the spice. And so in James 2.25 it says, And likewise was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by a different Route. Now, by the way, I want you to notice very closely because a lot of people will say, and including some pretty notable Bible scholars, I, I might add, uh, R.C. Sproul being one of them, that, that she was justified in her lying to government authorities. I don't find anywhere in Scripture where God changes what is a sin based on the circumstances. That's called situational ethics. I don't think it's taught in Scripture, and all due respect to R.C. Sproul, he's wrong because God calls a lie a lie, and a lie is still a sin. Uh, but she definitely lied to her government authority. She bore false witness. But what does, and nowhere, by the way, does the Bible anywhere either condone or commend her lying. But what does James say she should be uh, commended for? It says she welcomed the messengers, and she sent them out by a different way. In other words, she saved their lives. So we're not, it's nowhere commends her lying, so I don't want you to think that just because because uh, Rahab could tell a lie and, and get away with it in Scripture that we're supposed to do the same. Uh, but, uh, and, and as I mentioned, some, I think she was a prostitute because this was normal during this time, and they often became innkeepers or so. But, but what were the actions? She welcomed the spies. She sent them out by a different uh, route than they came, and there was no commendation of her lying. So Rahab hide, hides the spies, and she lies to city officials. So look at Joshua chapter 2. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly went, and I'm just going to make it easy on myself, folks. It's getting, I'm straining at this, this particular font size here, so if you bear with me just a minute, it'll make it a little easier. It says, uh, Joshua tells the spies, go and see the land, especially Jericho. So they went and entered into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab. And again, they weren't necessarily looking for a prostitute, but that's where you found lodging. And so she went there and spent the night there. The king of Jericho was told, Look, some men from the Israelites have come here tonight to search out the land. And the king of Jericho sent for Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who came to you, the ones who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the whole land. But the woman took the two men and hid them. And she said, Yea, the men came to me, this is her lie, but I did not know where they were from. And when it was time to shut the gate for the night, the men left. I do not know where they went. Chase after them quickly, for you might catch up to them. But she had taken them to the roof and had hidden them in the stalks of flax that she had spread out on the roof. So the men chased after them on the way to Jordan at the fords, and they shut the gate behind the pursuers that had gone out after them before they went to sleep. She came up to them 
uh, on the roof. And so then she expresses her belief to God. And look at this. He says, and said to the men, I know that Yahweh has given you the land. This is her faith expression. And that the dread of you has fallen on us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away in fear because of your presence. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the waters of the Red Sea before you went out from Egypt, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites that were beyond Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. We heard this, our hearts melted, no courage was left in anyone because of your presence. And then she expresses her faith again. For Yahweh, your God, is God in the heavens above and on the earth below. Now, by the way, that's a pretty profound revelation on her part because they believe that some gods were in the skies, some gods were on the ground, but she believes that he's God everywhere. And that's a really remarkable belief for that time. And so Rahab at this point then asked mercy for her family. It says, so then, please swear to me by Yahweh because I've shown loyalty to you and you will show loyalty also to my family. You must give me a sign of good faith and you will spare my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all that belongs to them. You'll deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, our lives for yours. If you do not report this business of ours, we will show you loyalty and faithfulness when Yahweh gives us the land. Then she lowered them with a rope through the window uh, as her house was on the outer edge of the wall and she was residing on the wall. And she said to them, go to the mountains so that the pursuers will not find you and hide yourselves there three days until the pursuers return and afterward you may go on your way. So she gave them very explicit destructions. So the people shouted. This is when Jericho actually falls. Remember they walked, Israelites walked around uh, Jericho six days in a row, marched around one time. On the seventh day they marched around seven times. They shouted, I believe, the scripture doesn't tell us, but they all shouted the same thing. I think the most common sense thing is they shouted the word Hallel, which is the word for praise the Lord, and, or the Hallelujah. And when they did, it says, and, and when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, they raised a great shout, the wall fell flat. I, almost the entire wall. What's the one part of the wall that didn't fall flat? The part that Rahab and her family lived on. The people charged each one straight ahead in the city and they captured it and they utterly destroyed by the edge of the sword all who were in the city, both men and women, young and old, ox, sheep and donkey. Remember, this is a Canaanite land that's full of wickedness and God had already said, you've got to wipe them out entirely. Then Joshua said to the two men who spied on the land, go to the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belonged to her just as you swore to her. And by the way, you remember, she held the scarlet rope out her window so people would recognize that that was the part of the wall that the spies had escaped from and they would not attack. So the young men who were spies went and brought Rahab and her father and mother, her brothers and all were with her and they brought out all her family and set them outside the camp of Israel. So Rahab's in the hall of faith. It says in Hebrews 11, by faith Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she welcomed the spies in peace. Again, no mention of her lying, it just says she welcomed the spies in peace. And she became an ancestress of King David and, and Jesus Christ. Now, this is kind of interesting. It says in Matthew 1 5, and Salmon became the father of Boaz by Rahab. So Rahab is Boaz's mother. And of course, you know, Boaz married Ruth, and it goes on from there. Boaz became the father of Obed by Ruth. So there's two Gentile women in a row here. And Obed became the father of Jesse. And of course, Jesse was the father of King David. Uh, and so it's pretty interesting. Now, in the Jews, in their, one of their commentaries, there was a tradition, Jewish tradition, that said that, uh, that uh, Rahab actually married um, Jeremiah's father, and that Jeremiah was, was her son. But there's no uh, evidence for that. It was just Jewish tradition, not Scripture. And Scripture asserts that, that Rahab became the wife of Boaz. So uh, 
Was it right for her to lie to city authorities? As I mentioned, God doesn't condone situational ethics. Uh, Rahab knew that, that Yahweh was coming. He would conquer Jericho, and she believed he was the only true God. And she responded to that faith, one, by hiding the spies. Secondly, protecting the spies, telling them that they needed to go hide out for three days before they headed back to camp so that uh, by then the pursuers would, would leave off looking for them. And the fact is, though, that she didn't have to lie. God was fully capable of, of dealing with that. Uh, some of you may remember The Hiding Place, a book about Corey Tinboom. And Corey Tinboom's family did often lie to Nazi authorities. Uh, uh, in fact, is they used to, Corey, if you don't remember this, Corey had problems waking up kind of groggy, and they were afraid she'd give away the Jews in, in her groggy sleep. And so very often they would wake Corey up in the middle of the night and they would stand where they couldn't, they could, she couldn't see who they were, and they would shout at her and says, you know, where are the nine Jews you're hiding? And, and she was groggy one of these times. She says, we only have six Jews. And, and her dad says, oh, no, this is not going to go well. You know, so they had to train Corey to, to wake up more quickly and answer because, you know, he built a false wall behind a, an armoire, basically, that, and the Jews would go hide in there behind the armoire, and they would just have just enough space to stand. They couldn't even uh, kneel down, and they were in there sometimes for days at a time. Uh, and, but then later there was another place where they put a trap door on their dining table, and they, uh, they, the trap door, you know, had a little rug on it, but it was under the table. And one day the Nazi authorities came in there saying, where are you, where are the ration cards? And, you know, how many Jews are you keeping? Where are the Jews? And, and, uh, whatever, I don't know why, but, uh, it was either Corey or her sister. One just thought she'd tell them the truth. Uh, you know, she got convicted about all this lying and she says, well, they're right there under the table. And the, the Nazis just, you know, they huffed off in, in arrogance because they thought that she was mocking them when in reality she was telling them where the Jews were. God blinded their reason. God didn't have them look under the carpet, didn't have them find the trap door. Uh, you remember in the Old Testament, God, God blinded the entire cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, you know, <laughs> he, he made it where they didn't see uh, the people that had come to Lot's house. Uh, he blinded Egypt. Where the Israelites, there was a darkness that came upon only the Egyptians. Meanwhile, the Israelites were walking around seeing just fine. Uh, so certainly, God could have hidden the spies. We, he didn't need Rahab's lie. The point is, though, that even though Rahab did it, and Scripture never commends it for, it is an imperfect demonstration of a changed life. See, I don't know if you know this, but the minute you became Jesus Christ, uh, you belonged to Jesus Christ, you weren't perfect. Now, in heaven, when God your Father looks at you, He sees you cleansed in the blood of Christ, and that's good enough for Him. But the reality is we're still not perfect, and we still do stupid stuff, and she told a lie. And that's not condoned anywhere in Scripture, but it shows that she had faith to believe that, that Yahweh was the one and only God, the God of both the heavens and the earth, which, again, is a remarkable admission from someone in a pagan culture. So... <laughs> I remember the story, a pastor had a woman come to him and, and she says, I'm deeply troubled about a problem I know is, is hurting my testimony. I exaggerate. I always seem to enlarge a story until it's all distorted. People know that they can't trust me. Can you help me? 
And the minister says, well, uh, let's talk to the Lord about it. So she began to pray, oh, God, thou knowest I have a tendency to exaggerate. And at that point, the preacher interrupted her and says, call it lying, ma'am, and you may get over it. And the woman began to weep because she knew he was right. She had been trying to, to change the word lying into exaggeration because it sounds so much better when you just say exaggerate. And all of us are prone to cover up our sins by giving them uh, polite names. And Corey Ten Boom in The Hiding Place says this, The blood of Jesus does not apply to excuses, but it has the power to cleanse any sin. We try to excuse a lot of things. But there's no forgiveness for excuses. There is forgiveness when you confess your sins. Uh, so, in the conclusion of the matter, faith and deeds are as essential to one another, James says, as the body and spirit. And so he says in this last verse of James chapter 2, that just as apart from the spirit or the breath of life, the body is dead, so in other words, you take the breath out of a person, they stop breathing, and they don't breathe long enough, that person's dead. He says, just as the body without the spirit, the, the pneumatos, or he would have said in Greek, the ruach, the, the wind coming out of your lungs, he says, so faith without works is dead. It's not real faith because there's no evidence of life there without it. True faith contributes to spiritual growth. It contributes to development. True faith is evidenced by doing for the Lord. So in the context, so putting this back in all of chapter 1 and chapter 2, in James chapter 1 we know that, that a believer is to stand confidently in God's Word even in the midst of trials and temptations. But then in chapter 2 we're told that we need to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they're of high degree or low degree, whether they're of rich means or of poor means, we're to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ and show them the love of Christ and never say to them, be warmed and be filled without doing something about it. Real faith, real love, real concern does something, and that's what we should do. And we're to accept all members of God's family without favoritism and, and all the family. Uh, we need to do so with a working, serving faith. And to gain spiritual maturity, a believer must be what God wants them to be and do what God wants them to do. In other words, our faith, again, as I call it Jimmy Johnson theology, our walk needs to match our talk. Now, so we close with this thought. We need to discern two things. One is we need to discern our own condition because the folks that are here this morning are not the only folks I'm preaching to. There's approximately 600 people a week that hear our broadcast online. Uh, and it, you, you go on Sermon Audio and you look up the statistics for what's happened, and usually within an hour or two of a sermon posting there, you, you'll, you'll see 40 or 50 people that have already listened to it. And that's amazing to me. And then you look a month later and 600 people have heard the message. And somewhere in those 600 people, there's somebody that needs to discern whether they're the real deal or not. Maybe they're, and you would think anybody clicking on a sermon website to hear a sermon probably loves the Lord, and that's probably the majority. But there's probably someone there that, that they don't, they play the game. They're, they're religious, they were raised that way, or maybe they're listening because somebody in their family made them listen. Uh, but, but they've got the talk without the walk. And they can fool people for a little while, maybe an hour in church or an hour in a social setting, but if somebody were to know them for a decade, they would see that there was no real evidence of a relationship with Jesus Christ. 
we need to discern ourselves, are we the real deal? Are we just playing the game? Or has Jesus genuinely changed us to where we can't be that wicked person anymore? I, I will tell you there's times that we all struggle with our flesh to the point we think it's just not worth living the clean life anymore. Why can't I just do X or why can't I just do Y? It's not easy being a Christian. And if anybody ever tells you it is, they're lying to you. Uh, and yet it is worth it to be the real thing because you spend an eternity with Christ. But we also need to discern the conditions of others. Now, this is where we've got to be careful. Jesus did say that we were not to, he said, judge not that you be not judged. We've got to be careful that we're not judgmental and instantly go around and say, well, he's going to hell, she's going to hell. I think they're going to heaven. Oh, she's going to hell. That's not our job. First of all, you and I can't see their hearts. They could be backslidden. Now, backslidden is not good, but I, I know that I have been backslidden for a time in my life and God forgave me and he brought me back and he made me useful to his kingdom. So it is possible to have a saving faith in Jesus Christ and for a little while leave your moorings and do stupid. And when you do stupid, you reap desperate. Uh, but we can't backslide and let it be the permanent condition of our life after that or God's going to take us out. It tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that there were some that had gone so far from the will of God that not only were they on the shelf for the Lord, but God eliminated them from this life so as not to damage the testimony of the church any longer. Some had first so forsaken the Lord's Supper that we're told in 1 Corinthians 14 that some of them are weak and some are sick and some now even are asleep. They died because of how they damage the testimony of Jesus Christ. So the condition of others then, we need to not judge them, but we do need to discern. What did Jesus say? How would people know we were the disciples of Christ? By two things, by our fruits and by our love for one another. There's got to be fruit in our lives and there's got to be love for fellow Christians in order for there to be proof of the fact that we're saved by the Lord Jesus Christ. So we're not to be judging, but we need, do need to practice discernment. And here's what I want to suggest to you. You might know someone that if you really think about it, and maybe you went to church with them somewhere, maybe you've heard them say that they have faith, maybe they even have said in a casual conversation that one day they're going to die and they're going to go to heaven. Ask them, why would God let you into heaven? What do you, what do you base that that statement on. See if they come up with the answer because I've received Jesus Christ as my Savior and asked Him to forgive me of my sins. Because I ask that question of people and a lot of times I get the response back, well, I am a good person. I've tried to live life right. You know what that tells me? It tells me they don't know how to be saved. They don't know the real answer. And that's an opportunity for you to share. You, and you don't have to be judgmental or condescending when you can do it, you can simply say, well, can I tell you how I know? Because I can't be good enough to impress God. And it wouldn't matter how good I lived life, I can't live it enough to impress a holy and righteous God. So here's what I did. Jesus died for my sins and he paid the price for my sins on Calvary. And he just offers me a gift of salvation. He says that he will pay the penalty for my sins for me if I'll just receive it. But he's not going to ram the gift down my throat. And so I prayed and I said, Jesus Christ, will you forgive me of my sins? I know that you're the Son of God. I know that you died for my sins. I know that you rose again from the dead. Will you now be my Savior and Lord? 
And I meant that when I said it, and Jesus changed me forever. That's as simple as that. But maybe you need to start discerning who among your friends you need to ask that question of, how do you know that God will let you into heaven? And if they don't have the answer, share it with them. Brother Steve's going to come lead us in a song, and I appreciate your kind attention as a preacher.